before I start, I would like to uh, acknowledge the Warriors and the Aboriginal people um, who I am going to talk about within uh, this uh, episode of uh, Frontier Wars. So welcome to Frontier War Stories. Before I go on any further, I would like to pay my respect to all Aboriginal people who fought in the Frontier Wars, which began as early as 1788 and lasted till uh, the 1930s. That's roughly 140 years Aboriginal people continued to fight. And I would like to pay my respects to them all across uh, this continent. Special episode today. Uh, the episode that I'm talking about, um, you know, what the episode is about, um, is about uh, Dundalee. I've previously done an episode on him and I spoke um, with Libby Connors, who um, is one of my guests that I'll speak with uh, in this episode as well. And I guess, you know, before we go any further, um, on the 5th of January um, is the anniversary of uh, Dundalee's uh, passing of, or death. Um, in eighteen, in in the late eighteen hundreds, uh, he was uh, executed. Um, and on the fifth of January, every year for the past ten years here in Brisbane, in Post Office Square, Aboriginal people and non-Aboriginal people have gathered to honour and pay respects uh, to his legacy uh, and to the many Aboriginal people who fought uh, here in in the in the Greater Southeast Queensland area, but also around the country. Uh, remembering sort of the figures like Dundalee. There is many around the country. I'll bring uh, my first uh, guest in. Um, hello, Libby. How are you going? I'm really well, bro. Uh, thanks for making some time uh, today to have a chat about um, Dundalee and, and, and in particular with this episode um, about um, what it's become known as, you know, as of recent, Dundalee Day. Uh, mm. January the 5th, where we pay our respects uh, in what is now Post Office Square. Um, and just for our listeners as well, as I said, I chatted with Libby. You can go back and listen to this episode uh, uh, that I chatted with her about Dundalee and also this 40 to like 50 year resistance that was in sort of the, the, the greater Queen, the greater Southeast Queensland area. An amazing sort of story as well, where I've still got to do some more episodes to sort of even touch on the surfaces of the many resistance leaders and fighters uh, within this area as well. Mm. Um, but Libby, just um, to, to cut a, a long story short, uh, quite some time ago you released a book called Warrior uh, detailing the life uh, and time of Dundalee. Uh, could you just give us a, a bit of a summary uh, of that book and of Dundalee uh, for our listeners, please? Uh, sure. So uh, 5th of January 1855 was the date when Dundalee was uh, publicly executed. Um, he was hanged uh, at the instigation of the Supreme Court of New South Wales and under the orders of the Sheriff of New South Wales because he had been found guilty um, of murder. And of course, I was very intrigued and tried to reconstruct as much as we could of Dundalee's life story. Uh, he was uh, a relatively young man when they executed him and he had clearly been born before the British arrived in the territory that is now southeast Queensland and in particular Brisbane. So um, he had grown up under his own law uh, and uh, he lived his life 
in accord with the, those, the principles of traditional Aboriginal lifestyle. So there's clear evidence that he was responding to um, requests from his elders and he was doing his actions based on his law. Um, so it was fascinating reconstructing what we could of his life and realising the depth of the story and how shallow um, the documents in the Supreme Court trials were because, you know, in, in their eyes, he was nothing but a murderer. But in fact, there was this wonderful story of how um, the Aboriginal community in South East Queensland was uh, struggling to respond to this uh, invasion of their country. Um, and, you know, so his story to me, I'm just... Um, I also always remember him uh, every year on the 5th of January and I think it's wonderful that there's now um, a plaque in Anzac Square and that um, Aboriginal people are, have always remembered him and are continuing now to remember him more publicly because it, it, here's a, you know, what I think is significant is the way it happens right there in the capital. It happens in Queen Street. They execute him in public uh, and it's all done by officialdom. So this is part of the history that white Australians don't know, uh, but this is one story they can't deny. It was documented by them. His execution was carried out by them. And it's just one um, very potent symbol of the pain um, that Aboriginal people have experienced and continue ex to experience through colonialism. Um, and, uh, you know, so his story is really striking, his bravery and his dignity and his commitment to his own values. Oh, definitely. You know, and we can just read uh, your book, Warrior, uh, to sort of find more information about Dunderley. Um, also research online, you know, there's, there's amazing resources out there now, you know, and with the sort of the invention of, of social media and of sort of the internet now, um, lots of these things are at, just the click of our finger uh, to sort yeah. of find out this information as well. Um, an interesting part I'd love to sort of talk about as well is sort of the court proceedings um, and how that played out. Um, and was it over a long period of time or was it quick and short because of, um, I guess, who he was and, and, and the type of person he was renowned to be as well? Um, uh, like you said, it was yeah. public. But then also lots of people, you know, uh, came to this as well because of the notoriety of who he was uh, as an individual and as sort of a feared, you know, uh, uh, person as well. So could you yeah, talk to a bit about that, you know, yeah. um, the, the the trial and then also, you know, um, I guess where people came from just to sort of be a part of, of this as well yeah. and the response, I guess, that you know from the Aboriginal people. Yes. So um, um, one side of the ledger, it was quite a long, drawn-out process. Um, they arrested Dunderley uh, in May, and just because of the way the um, legal system worked in those days, that meant they held him for six months before um, the officers of the court could come up from Sydney to hear a number of Supreme Court cases in Brisbane in November. So um, I often think what an awful experience he had um, surviving just six months in the old Brisbane jail. It had originally been the female factory um, uh, in convict times and they'd converted it to a jail. And, you know, to go from his freedom of his lifestyle to being held in that horrible stone um, building where he couldn't have a fire and couldn't have the companionship. I mean, his 
his stoicism sort of is evident right there and his training. But um, the other reason why it's quite a long drawn out process really is that from the point of view of the settlers, he had had a, an arrest, arrest warrant out for him since 1843. His first um, action had been um, on one of the sheep stations near what is now the township of Woodford. So from their perspective, he'd been evading capture for um, more than uh, 12, 11 to 12 years. Um, but um, the way the court system worked in those days, the accused didn't have the right to speak in their own defence, but they did have the right by this stage to legal representation. And um, it was interesting, uh, if an Aboriginal person couldn't speak English, then the court also uh, was supposed to appoint a translator and always appoint, or most of the time, the judges would insist that somebody, a barrister, represent the accused. So Dundee did have a very high-powered lawyer, really, representing him in the courtroom. But um, there was disputes about how good his English was, and they decided that he didn't need uh, a translator, that his English was good enough. But um, what comes through the courtroom was that even his defence lawyer was scared of him. He was a really tall man. He was very powerfully built. You know, we've got lots of um, witness accounts of just how beautifully powerful Aboriginal people were in these days because they were so active. Um, and, uh, you know, settlers were really fearful of Aboriginal physical prowess um, because, yeah, and that was also... Um, part of his culture was that there was a lot of um, uh, hand-to-hand combat and um, physical sports that used to be played around southeast Queensland. So, uh, yeah, he was a very big, powerful man and he was very tall. And the judge, uh, interestingly, was very short. He was a short Irishman. So, uh, you know, the evidence is he particularly intimidated the judge, even though the judge was one of these progressive judges. He had made his reputation in the colony because he had defended con- convict rights and he had also um, prosecuted the Mile Creek um, massacre trial. So that really shocked me when I looked at Dunderley's story to think that even the judge presiding at his trial had made a brave stance trying to take on white settlers for their horrific violence towards Aboriginal people. Um, but on this occasion, neither the judge nor the defence lawyer were effective in protecting Dunderley's rights. So um, poor Dunderley was had to sit through his trial in chains. Um, they even had the jailer appear. The judge did say, look, this isn't right in a British court for somebody to be manacled. Um, we're supposed to be respecting the rights of, of the accused. Um, so he did go to release Dunderley um, when the uh, prosecutor called for the jailkeeper to come forward and the jailkeeper came forward and said, no, look, he tried to escape in jail. Um, I think he'll escape. And so in the end, Dunderley's own lawyer said, all right, you know, Your Honour, I'll, I'll allow the, the trial to proceed with my client. <laughs> uh, I'm still manacled. Um, and the very fact that the jailkeeper was present says something about the extent to which whites in the township feared Dunderley. Um, they actually had several local uh, constables present at the trial as well. So the, the trial, Dunderley was held in the old uh, Brisbane jail, which later became the general post office, which is still a lovely colonial building in Queen Street opposite um, Anzac Square. Uh, he, his trial was on the third floor of the old convict barracks, which were the other end of Queen Street. 
um, opposite the Maya Centre, um, near near Lennon's Hotel there. Um, so he was he was um, in a small what it, what was actually built as the chapel was where they held the the trial, and in that small chapel were officials from Sydney and um, people like uh, uh, police constables and other officials watching proceedings as well as an all white jury. Um, there was only one person who tried to question the evidence um, at Dunderley's trial, and that was the police magistrate of Brisbane. Um, and that was really interesting because he also had a record of being very harsh in his attitude towards local Aboriginal people. Um, but, you know, there, you know, it's just interesting that somebody of that calibre, listening to the evidence, had to speak up because... You know, the evidence against Dunderley was so flimsy and um, they actually relied on the testimony of a young um, part Aboriginal boy who was only 10 or 11 when he witnessed one of the attacks Dunderley was a, a, um, known to have participated in. So, and that, yeah, so, uh, sorry. What was his charges? Uh, so he was uh, charged with um, murder of, uh, attempted murder and murder, attempt uh, um, an assault on missionaries in 1845 at um, what we now call Narangba, Burpengari Narangba area. Then he was charged with the um, murder of a pastoralist by the name of Gregor and his female servant. And um, he was also uh, charged with the murder of two uh, sawyers, in other words, you know, people who lo log trees, tree loggers, who, and that attack took place. Um, near present day, the present day uh, area of Marumba or Petrie and Whiteside that took place on that, um, that was then a station. And um, in the end, they really couldn't produce evidence to prove he committed the murder of um, William Boller, one of the Sawyers, lawyers, Sawyers, yeah. <laughs> and um, no, they couldn't prove that he definitely committed the murder of Andrew Gregor, but they found him guilty of, of murdering Andrew Gregor and of murdering uh, one of the Sawyers. And um, so he was he was found guilty. He was taken back to the uh, prison to await his execution because in this period, you know, the, the punishment for murder was uh, public hanging. Um, now, there was no process of appealing a decision in these years, but the inner cabinet, the, the governor, the colonial secretary and um, the attorney general and the judge who presided at the trial reconsidered at a meeting in Sydney anyone who'd been sentenced to capital punishment, anybody being given a death sentence. And it was really interesting that his judge, when he got back to Sydney, um, reconsidered the evidence and had to admit that the evidence coming from the part Aboriginal boy, who was by this stage, he was 15 or 16, but immense pressure on him from the settlers to find Dunderley guilty. And uh, it was his evidence that changed over the years. You know, they had been bringing him forward at different trials from uh, and hearings from 1846 through to 1854. So, you know, he'd gone from being a small child who witnessed one attack um, to, to, to being a, a, a teenager um, and had been living with whites all this time and was under terrible pressure. And when he got back to Sydney, in the end, the judge did um, remove the charge that he was guilty of of, um, uh, of the murder of Andrew Gregor, but that still left the... He was guilty of the 
uh, murder of a sawyer. And I mean, there's a bit of a story there too, because that uh, that sawyer, the, the witness to that event, he had was a man who had survived the attack. He'd been sawing with two other men. Uh, he was an ex-convict, and he actually lost his front teeth in that attack, but in the end survived the attack. So, um, uh, you know, from the distance of 150 years, sitting in the archives, reading through the papers, it was quite interesting for me to note the um, clerks recording the evidence had trouble recording the names when when um, when uh, John Smith spoke because he couldn't speak properly because he'd lost his front teeth in this attack. But this particular man had been involved in assaults on young Aboriginal women, um, and I'm sure that that was that was part of of the reason why that attack took place. Um, but yeah, it's just interesting. So so this John Smith it was his testimony that ultimately led to Dundalee's conviction and murder. He was an illiterate ex-convict. He himself had been engaged in some pretty appalling events on the frontier around Brisbane. Um, and so that's, you know, the great inequality of the legal system, that it was taking evidence from whites, um, and, but, but, but Dundalee himself wasn't in a position to give evidence. And even if, he, even if there'd been different court procedures, um, he, uh, they uh, they wouldn't have accepted his evidence on oath because Dundee wasn't a Christian, so the jurors would have they could have heard his evidence if the judge had allowed it, but it wasn't part of process at the time, so the judge didn't even bother raising it, nor did his defence counsel. And even if he had, the judge would have had to have advised the jury that because he couldn't swear uh, on a Christian Bible, that they didn't have to um, give it the same weight as the evidence of a Christian who's sworn on the Bible, even if they are an ex-convict who can't, who isn't literate and who can't speak properly. So that's why in the past, lots of, you know, I guess that's why in the past, you know, before Mile Creek and maybe even after, you know, when violence was enacted against Aboriginal people, you know, whether it was sort yes. of, you know, murder, rape or, or, or just common assaults, you know, people yes. weren't held to account because of that absolutely yep there's there's been some really interesting done of, of each of the the colonies and um places like new south wales and queensland would not allow aboriginal evidence until the 1870s and even then if it wasn't sworn it wasn't sworn and so jurors didn't have to, to you know give it the same weight as evidence from others um but even in those colonies that did allow aboriginal people to give evidence um, what you have then is all white juries will say, all right, you know, this white person is guilty of some kind of assault of an Aboriginal person, um, but we, we're not going to, you know, there was only one person in Western Australia, one white man ever hanged for the murder of an Aboriginal person. Um, other whites were found guilty, but they might be given a fine, you know. So this, this, is, this is the unfairness. This is colonialism coming through the legal system where you have all white juries, um, you know, determining guilt or innocence. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's distressing to read through the data and, yeah, and see the unfairness. And it's inter interesting how you mentioned the judge who, did, who was a part of the Mile Creek Massacre. Uh, um, you know, next thing you hear, he's up here and he's doing sort of Dundalee's case uh, as well. Yes. I, I thought that was interesting. I never even knew that was the that was the case. Yes, 
And the, the interesting part is, you know, the judge isn't doing it so much because he wants to hurt Aboriginal people. He's doing it because he's trying to assure the white community um, that the law applies to everyone. Because the settlers are saying the law is an ass, just let us go out and, you know, do warfare openly. So th- this is this is the dilemma for somebody like Judge Terry, who's trying to say, no, I believe in rule of law. There shouldn't be warfare. Aboriginal people have rights before the law. Uh, I need to assure the settlers of Brisbane that I am just, <laughs> that I can find white men guilty of murder and I can find Aboriginal men guilty of murder. And, you know, but he's talking in the face of, of horrific and determined settlers who just want to make money out of this colony. And, you know, um, no matter what he does. And the other, the other man who was, who was trying to, to stop the violence and used, trying to use law to stop violence was the Attorney General, John Plunkett. And he had actually been the prosecutor of the Mile Creek Trials. And he didn't come up for Dundalee's trial. Uh, he did come to Brisbane for some other trials. And whenever he did, the local newspaper condemned him. They condemned him because they saw him as being responsible for those seven white men hanging for what they did at Mile Creek. And 20 years later, they still haven't forgotten it and they're still using it against Plunkett. So you get this, you know, this these well-intentioned whites saying, no, we can have a colony built that, that doesn't have to be built on warfare, that doesn't have to hurt people. Even though we're going to allow settlers to go out and steal Aboriginal land, somehow we're going to be able to do it humanely. Um, but they're just flying in the face of, of settler aggression um, and settlers determined to uh, make money out of Aboriginal land and to claim that Aboriginal land for themselves. So um, it's, uh, and once, once the colonies are given self-government, it's the settlers who are determining the laws and sitting in the parliament. Whereas men like Judge Terry and Attorney General Plunkett, they're operating in the period when it is the colonial office in London who are trying to calm settlers. You know, from from 12,000 miles away, they're trying to say, settlers won't go out and do this and we're going to try and enforce it. Um, But then they just did not put the resources into making, you know, into stopping settler violence on the frontier. Um, And and once you have self-government, that just is nonsense. Um, And settlers behave with astonishing abandon. They, They still try to claim they're operating under law, but it's, pretty shallow if you go back and read any of the inquiries Uh, and whenever for example whenever there was um, criticism by white settlers of of how horribly the native police behaved in Queensland and so there would be settlers saying let's get rid of this native police this is appalling there's so much violence and mayhem Uh, and settlers would just be appear before the parliamentary inquiries and say you remove the native police and we'll take the law into our own hands. They, they would say it quite openly. And so you get this ludicrous discourse in which they say, oh, that the native police is less violent than having the settlers just run rampant. Um, so, uh, um, and I've got a couple more questions. Um, could you tell us a bit about uh, the day or the morning of or yeah, other day, you know, uh, January 5th when, mm-hmm. you know, 
I guess Dunderley was sort of led to the gallows and you know what yeah. you, know, you know could you talk to us about you know who was there you know what was happening um you know obviously people from Sydney came up and I'm sure there was local Aboriginal uh, mob there as well maybe in support of him getting hung and then also you know against you know who are against him being hung as well oh absolutely yeah it was quite an event in the township um you know the township was only about a uh, actually, I'm, I shouldn't try and quote figures, but it's 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 only a small township still of I would say less than a thousand people. Um, but uh, you know, Aboriginal um, uh, networks were still extensive. You know, the, probably Aboriginal people still outnumbered uh, white settlers in the town. You know, it, Aboriginal people from the surrounding area, and uh, yeah, um, all the uh, Aboriginal people, Dunderley's friends and family, but also other Aboriginal people from other Aboriginal First Nations uh, all <clears throat> came into Brisbane to witness the hanging. So they all gathered on what was kind of still Aboriginal land um, uh, in 1855. That was all along Wickham Terrace. That was still bush right down to where Central Railway Station now is and the Sheraton Hotel. That was, a, a you know, a hill leading and on the other side, of course, was, and still is today, is Victoria Park. And Victoria Park... Um, was the camping ground one of the one of the Aboriginal villages around southeast Queensland was there at what we now call Victoria Park. So Aboriginal people would camp along Wickham Terrace there and around the edges of Victoria Park with the uh, local Aboriginal owners camping on Victoria Park itself. So um, they all came in to this ridge line near where Rail Central Railway Station now is to witness the hanging because it overlooked the entrance to the jail. Um, there was no executioner based in Brisbane by this period once the convict station had closed down. So the government of New South Wales had to send up the official executioner for New South Wales, a man called Green, who had by this stage hanged more than 400 people over a 25-year over a history. He was public executioner for New South Wales. Um, and uh, there were also um, all the uh, there was also a detachment of native police in town that day, and all the constabulary were called out. There was a uh, you know ten or so police officers based in the township of Brisbane in these years, and um, this detachment of native police and their white officer were also called out to be on duty because there was a fear that Aboriginal people would rescue Dunsley. Local officials knew how important Dunsley was, especially to Aboriginal people to the north of Brisbane and especially to Aboriginal people on Bribe Island. Uh, he'd been living on Bribe Island for um, uh, oh, um, more than 12 years by this period. And there's quite a community of Aboriginal men on Bribe Island who are defending country. And um, we've got them evacuating whites when they come onto country. Um, you know, they just... Anyway, so significant gathering of hundreds of Aboriginal people on that hill. We also know that most of the white people of the town turned out. We know because the, the newspaper in its report subjected the fact that there were even women and children showed up at Dunderleaf hanging. Um, so it just seems like most of the town thought this was... They had feared Dunderleaf for more than a decade. So his hanging was a real event for the whites who were so in fear of him and for the Aboriginal community that had so looked up to him. Um, and the great tragedy, the other um, interesting person who was present 
um, was a man who, um, goodness, I'm, I've got a blank of his name, um, Sil- Sylvester. Um, he, he was an artist who'd come to live in Brisbane and he actually did a line drawing of Dundley, which he later sent to the Sydney newspaper. So it was reported in Sydney with an illustration and um, there were also reports of what had happened here, even in um, English newspapers. And um, But the great tragedy was that Green um, misjudged Dunsley's height. Dunsley was so tall that he didn't build the gallows high enough. So uh, when he... Uh, Dunsley had an opportunity, this was the custom, um, that the condemned did have the right to address the crowd before they hanged. The court officials wanted the condemned, of course, to admit their guilt and to ask the crowd, you know, for forgiveness and to ask their God for forgiveness. So Dunderley used the opportunity to call out to his people and to say, you know, avenge me. You know, he's saying, stay true to our law, stay true to our country, stay true to our traditions. So he doesn't get up and say, you know, <laughs> I'm guilty, um, forgive me. He, he, he sticks to, um, to his upbringing, to his training, um, and calls on his calls on his wife in particular. According to some accounts, he could see his wife and, and called on her and called on Billy Barlow, another significant um, Aboriginal man from Bribey Island. Um, and uh, but yeah, he wasn't allowed to speak for long. He initially spoke in English to whites in the crowd, and then he called to his own people in his own language. Um, but the executioner soon cut short his speech and um, pulled on the ropes. But because he'd misjudged Dunderley's height, Dunderley's feet fell on the ground below. And uh, it was then a horrific scene, apparently, according to the newspapers, that Green then had to tie Dunderley's legs behind him and drag on the body. So the whole point was that Public, ex- public hangings, the British claimed their public hangings were humane because you died instantly because your neck broke. Um, this is the same. The French claimed their guillotine was humane because you died instantly. Green proved just how horrific and how, you know, the, the cruel torture that public hanging could be because he completely bungled it and he actually had to drag on Dunsley's body until Dunsley choked. Um, but he did at least have the coffin um, below near the gallows. So, um, um, although the reports didn't really give any detail about the removal of the body, and we're not completely sure where he was buried. We think he was buried up on Petrie Terrace, and that his bones were probably removed when they did the Hale Street overpass, which is now the inner city bypass. In which case, his bones may be um, still held by the. Anthropology Museum at the University of Queensland, but I don't know if anyone will ever be able to identify them. Um, but yeah, a huge howl, you can imagine, went up from the Aboriginal people gathered on the hill um, as, as Dunderley's body dropped. Um, uh, and uh, John Wickham, the police magistrate who tried to challenge the evidence at Dunderley's trial, uh, he didn't stay to witness the hanging. He went to Sydney that day. Uh, and he had sent his manservant to drive him to the Brisbane Wharf where he caught the, the boat to, down to Sydney. And it was his manservant who said he heard the yell from Aboriginal people on Wickham Terrace there as Dunsley was executed and that it sent a, you know, a chill down his spine uh, and he left because Wickham had said leave, you know, in case the town is attacked. 
Uh, so he was one who left evidence about the fact that many whites feared the town would be attacked, which explained why they'd insisted all the police be on duty, why they insisted the native police be on duty. Also, um, sorry, just yeah. really quickly, <clears throat> everything with the trial, was that ever disputed, you know, later down the track saying, you know, sort of, uh, you know, it was balanced or not balanced or anything within the trial? No, they're, they're, because there wasn't um, any means of appeal in these days. So there was only the executive meeting down there in Sydney. So, you know, and, and we don't even know uh, how they deliberated. We just know that when the judge, the judge still had to sign a final warrant. And when he did, he omitted Andrew Gregor. Uh, and I would suggest that is because police magistrate Wickham had challenged the evidence regarding the murder of Gregor. So the, the judge just removed Andrew Gregor's name. And so in the end, the warrant said he was ultimately executed for the um, murder of the Sawyers, William Waller and William mm-hmm. Boller. Um, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yep, go. No, I was just saying there was, because there wasn't any kind of means of, of appeal, there was no actual review of, of any of the trials in this period, as far as I'm aware. Just in wrapping up as well, you know, I think it's 166 years later. I could be, years. Yeah. give or take how many years I'm off. Um, the f- the fact that we're still commemorating him, and you know, there's books being written about him, um, sculptures being done. You know, um, the <clears throat> people are, are remembering you know this figure, Dundee mm-hmm. as sort of this this figure, or you know, his descendants are still mourning him. You know, as sort of a, a distant relative who 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 you know fought for their rights mm. as well as you know all Aboriginal people in southeast Queensland and and you know represented sort of you know what was happening in the mm. time in that time you know 166 years later why is it still important for us to sort of commemorate remember mm. mourn sort of his legacy yeah yeah 165 years oh well I I, I think the, the Aboriginal people it's it, he's such a symbol of sovereignty. You know, he he grew up on Aboriginal land, well, on and living by Aboriginal law. Along come these settlers and say, no, no, it is only our law now. And, and that's that's what I love the the symbolism of his gallows speech, where he's calling out to his people, no, you know, under our law, my my death must be avenged. So I think he's a he's a, and also his dignity. You know, on the gallows to have that presence, it really showed his leadership, which explained why. You know, people from diverse First Nations attended to watch because he was he was someone special, and uh, that's why I was so interested to follow up some of Billy Barlow's actions after his death. I don't know Billy Barlow's Aboriginal name, but I know Billy Barlow was a a friend of Dundalee's and worked alongside Dundalee, and he did carry out further actions after Dundalee died. And I think for the white community, um, uh, you know, it's so important. It is, uh, Fiona Foley, the Aboriginal artist, said recently, you know, talking to white people about this history is like talking to children because they just don't know it. She said that about the Aboriginal Protection Act, but it's true, too, of the frontier. They don't know their history. And I just think, you know, his case, he is a case study that they can't ignore. Everything is documented by the Supreme Court of New South Wales. It was all done according to the rule of law right there in the capital city of what is now, you know, the third biggest state of Australia. So, you know, I think I think it's a it's a really important um, he's a really important man for both Aboriginal history and for um, whites wanting to understand their history. 
um, because you can't deny the injustice of the process and the way even the well-meaning, you know, legal system just rode roughshod over um, over Dundalee and his rights and the rights of his community. They just didn't have a means of responding to their needs at all in this period. Yeah, one of the things I you know love about history is that really tells us about our relationships, you know, mm. um, that has been formed, you know, since, you know, the times of Dundalee or even before, you know, with Mile Creek or even Waterloo Creek before that or or other sort of interactions with um, around the country as well. Like, that's what history does. It informs us of, 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 of our relationships and our sort of status within sort of the societies that we live in. You know, um, and I think, you know, the more people that sort of appreciate sort of the, you know, true history will sort of get a proper understanding of, of exactly what Aboriginal people went through. Um, yes. And, 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 and I not, think it's... And not just went yeah. through, but what they sacrificed, what they willingly gave up, you know. Mm. Um, well, un- and unwillingly. <laughs> well, of course, unwillingly, but, you know, yeah. like, like Dundalee on the gallows saying, you know, I'm about to die, revenge me. Obviously, that's sort of unwillingly, I'm sure, you know, if he had the opportunity to sort of be free, he would have been, you know, but um, many people like him who sort of, you know, you know what I mean? Like, um, but yeah, that's... And I just wanted to rescue him, you know, from from the notion that, you know, uh, Supreme Court, he's executed as a criminal. And when I went back and looked at his story, I realised, no, this was this really important man. And we've kind of got to go back and, and do that for all Aboriginal men. The so same with Billy Barlow. They never got Billy Barlow as far as I could discover. Um, but he's out there defending Aboriginal women who are being attacked by white settlers because, you know, there were more white men in the district than there were women. So they're, they're this unruly group of ex-convicts roaming across Aboriginal country. Of course there were horrific sexual assaults going on. And, um, you know, these men deserve to be honoured um, as you're doing, honouring them as warriors from the frontier wars, but honouring them too for their um, defence of their families as well as their defence of their people, you know. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, now, thanks, Libby, for having a chat with me on Frontier Wars. It's always great to ha- uh, have a chat yeah. with you uh, on Frontier Wars or even, you know, uh, on Let's Talk as well that I host on 98.9 FM. Monday sure. to Thursdays, you can uh, catch me on there as well. <clears throat> um, but no, thank you. You know, I always appreciate our conversations. Very insightful and very, you know, I enjoy them because, you know, I grew up in Brisbane and, you know, I need to learn more about sort of this history of, of what happened uh, to the local uh, mobs yeah. in and around sort of southeast Queensland as well. So I do appreciate yeah. having a chat with you. Um, oh, good on you both for doing this and, and helping, yeah, overturn the, the story. It's so important.